Hi everybody, this is Afro Leads, the podcast. As you all know, Afro Leads consists of two sisters, Julia and Steph, and we are on a mission to promote British black business and culture. At present, we have multiple social media platforms. The one that we most use is the Instagram platform where we post positive features about black business, groups, communities, music, celebrities, and so much more. Today, we are joined by the wonderful multi-award winning force, whom is Marvareen Cole. Marvareen is the embodiment of black excellence and has several impressive strings to her bow. Journalist, TV and radio presenter, podcast presenter, broadcaster, radio producer, screenwriter, media trainer, lecturer, and beer sommelier. <laughs> Marvareen is a fine ambassador for her home city of Birmingham and has worked with several household networks, including Five News and Sky News. Her Black Girls Don't Cry documentary on BBC Radio 4 was awarded the Buper Mind Media Journalist of the Year Award last year. The documentary tackled issues pertaining to the mental health of Black women and debunking the myth that is the title of the documentary, which is still available to listen to on BBC Sounds, and we highly recommend it. It's brilliant. Marvareen is passionate about beer, so much so that she's an accredited beer sommelier and has been writing about it for over 10 years, including on her former blog, Beer Beauty, and is now a recent addition as a beer writer for BBC Good Food. Her podcast, Fabulous Women Podcast, is available on Spotify and Apple. It's being intentional about bringing inspiration, triumph and joy, something the world most definitely needs more of. Thank you, Marvareen, for your representation. Keep on shining. We see you, Queen. Yes! Air horn, air horn. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank oh. you. Oh, gosh, I'm humbled by such a, a lovely introduction. It's great to be with you. You are oh, It's great welcome. to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. So as we do with most of our podcasts, we intentionally invite specific guests that one we've posted about, but two, I was saying earlier to my sister that we fangirl about. So <laughs> we're incredibly honoured, but extremely excited to have you onto the podcast. As Julie mentioned in the introduction, you're from Birmingham and you're a fantastic ambassador for the city. Your parents are born, I think it was is it Montego Bay, Jamaica. Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Yeah, so gosh, you know, my parents were of the Windrush generation, came here, came to Birmingham in the kind of early to mid 50s. And uh, my mum was a nurse, my dad was a builder. Interestingly, we had a bit of a crazy start to, to life in that my dad did pretty well as a builder and he used to drive a silver Jaguar and um, myself and my brothers used to go to private school. We started out in private school, actually. So that's I think that's one of the ways or that's one of the reasons why I am fully a Brummie with a Brummie accent, but I can switch to a kind of like quite quickly uh, a received pronunciation because I had elocution lessons when I was about four, wow. which was crazy, four and five. And so, yeah, uh, my, my dad ended up kind of going to America. So my mum bought myself and my two older brothers up. So, you know, standard upbringing from there. We went then on to state school. You know, my mum loved reading the local newspaper and watching the local news bulletins on TV. So that's how I got into journalism. I just loved knowing what was going on in the local area. I was nosy. <laughs> <laughs> and um so when my mom finished like reading the local paper she'd just leave it and I would just dive into it see what was going on I used to write letters to the local paper and all this sort of stuff you know and I had a I had a fun upbringing you know straight through school into university my one of my oldest brothers was the first to go to university and I saw him like doing mechanical engineering in Leeds and I was like oh maybe I should be going to university as well. Mm. As all three of us are professionals, you know, Fitz is an accountant, Tony is IT, kind of business analyst. So, you know, it's all about the drive. The drive, our drive, you know, comes from my mom. She always said, you know, um, make sure you get your education, <laughs> get your degree. When you do your degree, then you can do anything you want. So she was all, about, all for education. Yeah, yeah. Was there a healthy competition between you and your siblings? That is so funny. I wonder if that, you know what? Because I was the only girl and the youngest, there was a point where they, when we were all a lot younger, we'd all play games and stuff together. And then as the lads got older, were more focused on their schoolwork. They used to leave me to play on my own. Oh, so there was competition between the two of them. 
<laughs> and I'd always be breaking up fights between them, <laughs> fighting over records or something or other upstairs. And I just used to just potter around on my own. So in a way, I was quite a, like a nerdy, quite solitary in some ways. Child used to love reading, read like I could read four books in a week, literally. Wow. <laughs> in the days when um you know my mum used to take me to the local library and you would choose four books to last you a month all right but you... i would i would dash through those like <laughs> do you remember them days yeah i mean this makes me sound i am very old by the way um, <laughs> but, um... You, julie was the same julie would read a lot actually you were very yeah. much you would just literally just get through Great and not your books from the library. So no, yeah. where are the books? Really what, what, because we because we, we read the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. And I, I just used to think. I just I love my books, loved studying. I would be asking for more homework. I was like the craziest kid. More homework after school. No, um, <laughs> that's yeah. So I, I genuinely, yeah, Matt. <laughs> I even got to be like deputy head girl and I didn't even I didn't even know how that happened really I suppose when I look back on it now I suppose I was popular because it was like a student vote but even then it was a shock because it was an all-girls school with a mixed six form and me and Rowan the um another black boy in my year we were the first ever black deputy head boy and deputy head girl and it was like oh, wow, wow big deal no that was, that was nice that hillcrest school <laughs> and was the school that you went to quite um diverse in terms of the ethnicity um, hillcrest school in bartley green in birmingham southwest birmingham it was a former grammar school it was majority white there were some black students there weren't a great deal of us so you know we'd hang out together all the rest of it you'd know who <laughs> you'd know where we were do you know what I mean? There'd be some yeah. commotion in, in, in the uh, in the sixth form common room or whatever. That was funny. But you know what? There was a good, good kind of um, atmosphere amongst all of us, black, white, Asian, because um, Birmingham is, you know, super diverse. And yeah, just had some of the best times at school. I remember when Michael Jackson's album Bad came out. You can work out my age from this. His album was out when I was, <laughs> I think it was 17 in sixth form. And all we'd do in our breaks was like, put the tune on, on on the cassette player this is yeah and we would all just dance we'd just do the moves and sing in and dance in all break time <laughs> that would be the best the best I, I wonder with you mentioned that you've had a, a keen interest in journalism since childhood you studied business at De Montfort that was your undergrad degree what was the decision why, why did you not do media or Oh, you, you've been doing your research. <laughs> I love it. Because, seriously, this, um, our, the reason I didn't study media or journalism at 18 was because I did not think that media would want me. So at the time, you know, I was looking around for a degree course. I wanted to do something broadcasting wise or journalism, but there were no or I couldn't find any broadcast journalism degree courses that would say that were training for TV or radio. And what there was were courses that would train you how to work in newspapers. Mm-hmm. Now, me being like a newspaper hound, right, I, I would always read national papers and local papers and the, the Sunday papers that I read were they didn't they were not for us I even knew at that age I, the way that, that some newspapers wrote about black people and how they they tackled stories about black people I did not like that and I thought why why would I want to go and study to go into newspapers where they seem pretty racist yeah. I I kind of knew you might call it, it's, it's called being conscious now, isn't it? But I didn't know that I was so conscious that I was making that decision. I was like, no way, I don't want to do this. And so, yeah, I, I, I wanted to study something. Obviously, mom said get a degree. So, you know, I went for business studies. Just something that gave me a, a view of all sorts. So you studied like computing and HR and marketing and whatever. You, you came out as an all-rounder. But doing that degree, I always, um, or my my passion for radio and television never died I knew I wanted to work in that area and it didn't matter what other job I did (laughs) 
it just kept eating away at me like you need to be working here broadcasting <laughs> this little like this bee going right and I I kind of not ignored it but I put a lid on it for a good 10 years after I'd graduated so what I did was I went into advertising after my degree didn't like that moved to marketing didn't like that basically just jobbed around doing this and that and being like a personal assistant executive assistant to to chief exec managing directors but on the weekends I was you know I I managed to hustle myself to get work at a radio station get you know get a show on a radio station I used to drive up and down to Stockport to do a Saturday night radio show I'd go over to Coventry on a Sunday do a radio show there I was doing uh, some early mornings I was doing traffic and travel broadcasting I was just like yeah. anywhere around the job yeah. <laughs> I was trying to do broadcasting so that desire never left me and then I had like a watershed moment I think I turned 30 and went what are you doing you must study you must study journalism now so that's when I went I went back to uni and did my postgraduate in broadcast journalism took me a while right <laughs> you know you know don't yeah, you and, and no experience is wasted and no. as you say it makes you more definitely kind of well-rounded well-rounded and yeah um, I'm sure you're drawing on what you've learned both in life and with your undergrad degree and do, do you feel that you needed to do the media degree to be able to enter the broadcasting arena yeah um yeah absolutely because in those times where I was a PA and what have you I did spend probably about three years as a personal assistant to someone at the BBC when the BBC used to have a big studio operation called Pebble Mill in Birmingham oh, I uh, yeah do you remember Pebble Mill they used to do all oh, it was big. daytime programs were made there so that's right well what was it I'm sure this morning was there oh no no that this morning's ITV but the this morning equivalent with and diamond and everything. Gosh, this You're is right. Yes, you are spang on. You're spang on. <laughs> that is it. It, it. it used to make Good Morning Anna and Nick. It used to be Can't Cook, Won't Cook with AZ Harriet. There used to be a lunchtime chat show called Pebble Mill at One. Alan Titchmarsh used to present. Used to make Style Councils or something like that. Or style, style Challenge. It, big TV studios. Um, loads going on. It was typically um, Media City, which is now in Salford, but it was in, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like, yeah, it was kind of like Manchester's operation now. Yeah, yeah busy I, studios, audiences coming in, all kinds going on. And those days, you know, when I worked there late 90s, it was kind of almost, it was past its heyday a bit, but it was still busy. And I worked as a PA to one of the commissioning editors there. And I was trying to do do little bits of telly I was doing a little bit of cable telly and things like that but I very quickly realized trying to do any work uh, in you know in the kind of entertainment or music space as a black woman was going to be difficult I think the closest I got I had an audition for children's BBC one time when I was still a secretary but it was kind of like when I didn't get that I was like "Mm, yeah maybe I should you know I've, I've kept pushing the journalism thing back 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 and now I was realizing this is the way to have a long career and do something that you're actually familiar with you know you're always reading the news watching the news talking about the news anyway so why don't you just go and try and work in in the field you've always wanted to and so you know I have to say it's the best thing I ever did was go back to university I got the last place that was available on this course because only they were only taking 20 people on a year and I got offered a bursary from BBC ITV and Heart FM at the time fantastic um yeah I was like all three, I was like, applied for them all, thinking just hopefully one. Yeah. All three offered me a bursary and I took the ITV one because it was the best. It was, you know, it paid fees and it paid so a little bit of like a stipend, a little bit of money each month and a six-month training contract as a TV reporter when I finished the... Go- I mean, these don't exist anymore, these kind of schemes in that, in that form. Um, still lots of bursaries around, but I was like, this is this is a sign, <laughs> you know, getting the place, getting the bursaries. And so, yeah, you know, I it, it took a while to get 
to make the right decision or to take the right leap of faith but I did it and so that for me you know I'm very philosophical and I love stuff about the mind and psychology and I think you know you do have signs and I think that you know there is a path for you but also you know you have a duty to kind of carve out your own path and follow your instincts which is what I did around the, the whole situation of my education and my future I, t- I love all that stuff mm-hmm. Julie honestly sometimes sometimes I've been so my god I've seen signs I've been manifesting this is what's happening so this is literally music to my ears I love all of that mm-hmm. stuff don't I yeah very much mm-hmm. that oh my god this is great it's it's really powerful to hear sometimes you go down one path because either it's expected or people, adult, well-meaning adults, often well-meaning adults, but, you know, they might kind of usher you down a certain course when maybe it's the course they should have taken. So they're really endorsing it. And then mm. it's just not for you. And it's really, it takes, it's really bold and brave to yeah. then be like, no, this isn't for me. Cause you know, I believe we've got one life and you know, you've got to make the most of it and you've got to be fulfilled in what you do. 100%. And if you're fortunate to do a job that doesn't feel like work, not that it's easy, but that, you, you know, it's, you, you put in hours, but it doesn't feel like that. Not very many people get that opportunity. So yeah, I think it's. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's so important to be satisfied in what you're doing in your work. And I know that when I started that course, I was just like, oh, all these people, I'm in the room every day with people who want to do the same thing as me. Even that was just such a thrill, yeah. such a buzz. And we'd all feed off each other with our energy and stuff. But the course was hard. Ooh, we cried a lot because there was, a, there was some hard work. Yeah, was a lot of contact time or was it? It was interesting. It's a course that the, 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 um, the university, it's the same university where I teach now, by the way, which is kind of crazy serendipity at bcu they used to do they don't do it anymore a six month fast track broadcast journalism postgrad so we would do it monday to friday nine to five so six months that's so yeah wow because i just i know um, friends who've been on for example the bgce that's one year and that is intense six months Wow. That is intense. But again, I suppose if you've yeah. got your training contract opportunity afterwards, it's like the perfect year, isn't it? Of consolidated learning and then putting it into practice, as it were. It's amazing. And, and do you think, it's, I'm asking because I asked my our brother this and anyone that works in media always wants to get the insight, but obviously mm-hmm. when you fell in love with journalism or media or the news it's very different to I think just in terms of the the platforms we've got now because anybody with a phone and an internet access can put news out so how do you adapt to that how do you control and protect yourself with that and how do you keep up with it I suppose because it's so different to when we were younger yeah it is so different gosh you know even me trying to make my way as a a journalist or you know trying to make my way in broadcasting I used to have to kind of go and hire a camera person hire an editor you know get produce kind of um every everything I say makes me feel so old produce VHS tapes right to send out <laughs> to like physically post to people so there was always a cost involved in like you trying to get yourself out there whereas actually there's no cost involved now if you've got a smartphone that's it boom social media and it's interesting now that I teach journalism, right, so I'm the head of undergrad journalism at Birmingham City University, and I now am teaching students about how to harness the use of this as their yeah. journalism, um, you know, their camera, their editing platform, and their distribution platform. So I've learned so much about that yeah. um, and the power of that. But it's interesting, some of my students are still kind of oh, we need to be in a studio to do things. And I'm like, you do not. And some of the biggest influencers out there who are making content are doing it from their bedroom or their living room or whatever. It's about what they want to say and what they want to communicate, what they want to explain to people or how they want to entertain people. You know, the message is is probably the most powerful you know it's, a, it's about the message because the medium's easy to do and doesn't have to be in a rigid space mm. like a tv studio or a radio studio and some students still don't get that and it's like just go like, I've, got, I've got a podcast idea can I book a student it's like no just go you can do it just get something out there and practice and I was not able to do that there was always a cost 
Yeah. You know, and it would be a high cost that I would have to save money for to go and do X, to go and get X, to go and get it edited, to go and distribute it. And I think that the more young people kind of get that, I can do it now, go, 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 the better, you know? It's interesting because I, I have this idea of, um, is it Gen Z, young people today? Is that that Gen Z? Generation X, is that? Yeah, Gen Z, you're 18 to 24-year-olds, I think. Yeah, yeah Gen Z, yeah. We do that anyway. So to hear that some are a bit hesitant and think... Oh, that, yeah. No, but you just say... I agree. I completely agree with you, Marvin. I used to work in education. I sometimes used to be really, really, really shocked at just the lack of, not common sense, but just the lack of ability to just do things on their own. I, I think, I don't know whether it's because students are bombarded with technology and they have so much to look at and to look through and you can contact them at every single stage at any time but I think the element of just sometimes common sense or thinking outside of the box or just having street smarts I don't know whether it's lost on them now because I don't know there's so much process and I think we're taught to be process minded and we do things this way but I that doesn't surprise me at all that people are thinking well I need a studio I need to have lighting I need an expert on sound rather than just go and do that but they've grown yeah. up kind of influences that have been doing as you say stuff on the bedroom and and then I don't know, maybe I'm a bit blinded most young people I meet who work seem to have loads of the businesses on the go <laughs> I'm like, I was just yeah. trying to get through my exams but you've got so many so hustling like, hustling yes that's why I mean, just do yeah. it it's like it's wow every day I'm hustling hustling yeah. you know that tune that's one of my favorite tunes to be fair yeah but that that do you know what that's down to I think I was listening to a documentary just the other day um, another one on radio four called code switching and I don't know if you've heard it but it's obviously about how one day we can be talking like this in a corporate environment you know black Asian and minority ethnic people are very good at kind of going from this to like chatting at home like we would with our you know with our mates and kind of speaking normally but that we there is a pressure for us to yeah. switch and it's called code switching the documentary kind of pointed out that a lot of young black asian and minority people now are unwilling to work in a corporate space or an institutional establishment space because they are not allowed to be free wow. to be themselves mm. and so they are being more entrepreneurial businesses on the go where they can be their own boss yeah. Mm, that's interesting actually yeah. and I think and you know I can I can I can feel that I really I really resonate you know I can feel that because it's been exhausting I think there's a generation like the, the gen x's like me uh, some millennials would be thinking yeah I've code switched and it's been tough and I've almost done it like effortlessly but it's been a ne necessary to survive and the effect, the toll it's had on me has not been very good. And so, yeah, the Gen Zs are going, no, I'm working for myself. Yeah. <laughs> because I've seen the effect it's had on my brothers, my sisters, my aunts, my uncles, my, my mom, my dad. It's really, really inspiring that because mm -hmm. I really, that really resonates with me, but I don't think going through the motions, you just end up being like maybe 30, thinking, crikey, who, who am I in this business and what am I doing? Because... You know, there's been times where I thought, God, life's or work's amazing. I'm, you know, well liked and I just seem to be getting on with it. And then for some reason, there's a deep unhappiness and it's because you're not yourself. You, you, I know everyone wears some form of a hat or a, a mask at work, but if you're hiding 90% of yourself, are you really at work? Is, are you really present? Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's that's so good for them if they're going to, mm -hmm. you know, create their own boardrooms and create their own cultures. That's, that's massive. It's incredible. You alluded to at times it's not always been as easy and I, and I wanted to, if that's okay, discuss your brilliant documentary, your award-winning documentary, Black Girls Don't Cry. I just wondered, was that a piece that has been in the pipeline for a while or was it slowly brewing and then it's you've been, had the opportunity to put it together with two other really incredible, brave ladies sharing their story, being honest with their narrative and just opening up people's eyes to how harmful it can be to just presume that people you know you're a strong black woman and it's not to be derogatory but you know just to not allow you to have anything and be anything else yeah yeah um was it brewing for a while you know it's something it's really interesting because I've never 
until that point I'd never spoken about it even to my family I remember saying to my mom oh yeah I've got a documentary coming about out and it says this and she was like oh she was really upset that I hadn't never spoken to about it before you know my depression and you were always as a journalist obviously you're always looking for something to highlight injustices unfairness right inequality and there have been explorations of mental illness in regards to black men but I'd not seen anything that addressed black women's mental health specifically so you know I was just thinking is, is this something worth exploring what kind of influences or forces are to bear on us as black women in this country and obviously I'd done some work before made some documentaries with BBC Radio 4 and kind of floated this idea and you know when I started exploring the data in that we're more prone to self-harm, panic attacks, OCD, anxiety, depression, you know the data shown in the NHS figures. I was kind of like so why? How do we explore this? And journalism of course is never about the journalists. I might have been the springboard for the story in that you know I opened that documentary with a little bit about my own experience but it's about finding out about other people's stories and how they have coped, are coping and what systems and processes and the support is out there for us and so yeah you know I I, as I found the data I was kind of like this has to be a documentary pitched it and you know got awarded it and then had to make it you know it took me six months to make it which is not a lot of time (laughs) and the two women that I asked to be part of it one I'd known for like at least a decade on social media and we met a few times and I thought, well, she's always been quite open on social about, um, this is J, J, JM, um, she'd always been open. That's always good to know. You know, when you're looking for someone to be part of a documentary, it's such a big thing. You know, and millions and millions of people listen to Radio 4 every week. It's like, it's not a big, you know, it's, it's not some small thing to ask somebody. But sensing how she'd spoken on social about it, I thought she might be interested in being part of this so I approached her and then Jade had found me on social media somehow on Twitter and we were just tweeting and stuff again serendipitous almost mm-hmm. you found me and I wonder then if you would like to be part of this project you know so it was tough and emotional to do to kind of explore my own experience and to hear some of the harrowing experiences of, of, of Jay and Jade but you know what also overwhelmed me? The response before it even broadcast, because it kind of went pretty much viral. <laughs> like people were just sending me messages going, do you know about this documentary that's coming on? And I was like, it's my You know, I was like, how is this? What? And then the response afterwards as well was just, you know, people just going, thank you for making this and highlighting all these issues that I thought, you know, I thought it was just me. I didn't know anybody else who knew about, you know, how we're stereotyped and all the rest of it. I'm going to get help now. It was just kind of like a shock that 30 minutes of radio could have such an impact. And extremely powerful. We've definitely spoke to me. I think to summarise, even the music, so there was Survivor, Destiny's Child, I was like, oh my God, this woman. You know, the commentary of, I think sometimes people say things without realising just how damaging they can be. So labels like being, you know, scary, aggressive, angry. You know, that for me is completely unacceptable from within a friendship group, let alone within a professional environment. And it can damage the most confident of people. So this element of being the swan, so peddling really deep Mm -hmm. and graceful on the surface whilst delivering targets and networking, relationship management, all those things that we have to do within work and work twice as hard sometimes in some industries, you know, it just resonated with me on so many levels. So for people to thank you, it's just normal. I, I literally listened to it and my emotions were up and down. I felt for the girls that you were speaking to, things I related to the to the comments that they were saying. I didn't obviously know the stats and the data that you're not everything that you went so diligently through in terms of the reporting, but it didn't surprise me either. So it's it was so well needed. Still is, and I think it will be timeless. You know what I mean? I think even though there are sort of slow changes within people understanding, you know, microaggressions, racism, how you should treat people, which in essence, it shouldn't have to be spoken about in 2020, but here we are. Um, I think the overall message of the whole piece was just, just wonderful and yeah. just so well needed. 
and especially because it's, it's focusing on like common mental health issues that you know they're common so even though people might not talk about it it might allow them now to be able to because mm. the, you're, you're open it's just a really powerful addition to the narrative and it might as you say give people permission a to recognize things in themselves or to seek help and you talked about the range of help you talked about the kind of the standard help from you know I'm a GP, so I do know, I can see both sides, mm-hmm. you know, I've been to the GP, they've just thrown tablets at me, and there's, you know, pros and cons, medication is right for some people, but other people, it, it's trying to have the time and yeah. with a, a skilled therapist, or even just time, time is key, sometimes, you know, to delve into what the underlying issues are, and, you know, you mentioned about the lack of representation within mental health professionals, and just, you know, the difference that can be had with being able to speak to somebody who has a cultural insight. Yeah. So you're not having to spend time explaining situations, you can just get into and dealing with the kind of the, issue the meat hand. of the issue. And yeah. yeah, black therapists, so Barton, yeah, if you, if you can do it and go to a private therapist at Barton, you know, has a list of black and Asian and minority ethnic therapists that you can kind of opt into and you can search regionally. So wherever you are, you can find someone in your town, city. But then, you know, also what I really loved was the African-centred therapists, like the Emotional Emancipation Circle that, um, yes. you know, Erica McInnes runs. I tell you now, I recommend, you know, and I'm not, I'm not getting commission or whatever, but I would recommend, you know, go and look at what she does, she's based in Manchester. She does workshops in Manchester and London, sometimes Birmingham. She's been doing some therapies over kind of various weeks, a two to four week period online as well. Oh, wow. They are worth it. You know, if you're looking for something that is an alternative, it's good to know that these therapies are out there. They should be available on the NHS, right? But, you know, that's a whole, you know, I did kind of touch on that about the need for culturally sensitive therapies and more of them and more support for voluntary organisations because there's so many voluntary organisations or people through church or whatever that are offering help. But, you know, how do they get the support to continue to offer help to people in the community? It's difficult. Because it's often short-lived. If there is funding, yeah. three years, five years, it's not consistent yeah so the one thing I wanted to ask you because I, f- I found it really insightful was there was a, a phrase about generational inherited behaviors and I you know there's so many times where I've that looks at my mum and she's like the she's like the angel of the family she's so hard working you know I look back and think how she looks after four kids and works so so many hours and yet she would always do more always and there was never a you know there was never a time where she would you know have a even think in her head, I'll pull a sickie or I'm just going to spend the morning in bed just to recover. That's just not my mum. And I know that's not, that's the same for many, many, many black kids all over, is, say, all over the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that sort of inherited behaviour really resonated with me because even, you know, I've, I've been at work before and been completely massively head colded up and I've just never called and never had to be walked out of the, walked out of the office because it's this generational thought of, I don't know whether it's one of two things, this element of, you know, not that I'm lucky to have the job, but, you know, you're at the job, do it, you know, do it to your best of ability. But also, I've never seen my mum ever struggle. She's always, even when she's poorly, she smashed it. You know, she's never going to have that sick day. So I think that was a really important line that just really jumped out at me. I was just thinking, thank goodness it's not just us that have, well, it's not thank goodness, but it's an observation that I feel a little bit at ease with because I know it's not just us. I think it's a... Like you say, it is one of those things that you look at the, the mum and they're just pulling the whole family together, aren't they? And they're striving and just going above and beyond. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always remember one of my mum's phrases that I always remember, she would say to me and my brothers, you know, if we got a bit boisterous or whatever. And it kind of like feeds into everything, really. And I'm not saying it's a wrong phrase, but it's just one of those things that might be a Jamaican phrase. It's just like keep yourself quiet right which is basically you know keep yourself quiet shut up don't complain get on with things right you know that's what I've always done it's not it's not always to be to the benefit of you mentally but it's just something that is so ingrained yeah so like you're saying like sicky I was not in never took sickies even you know when I went to university the first time around and did my degree I hated it I didn't have the best of experience 
to be leaving or to not turn up for classes was not anywhere in my brain at all ever <laughs> i just gone just did the thing right Absolutely. powered through got the degree there's so many things now where i see kind of you know young people just go nah you know i ain't doing this <laughs> and i like the resistance right but i'm also kind of like half thinking where's your determination and your resilience yeah. there's kind of got to be a bit of both Absolutely. Um, yeah, so it's balance to be true. It's maybe just sometimes it's good to be have make an observation because there's a time and a place, isn't there, for it? But then sometimes if that's always the the way, it's not necessarily being the kindest to yourself. So then sometimes you do have to to take a break to to take a step back. So yeah, it, it, yeah, the, and it's good to have the permission to do that as well. Yeah, absolutely. But no, I love the I absolutely love the documentary. I'm so proud of you for it. You you would have really opened the eyes for so many people within the community and outside yeah definitely, definitely. so I'm so proud of you thank you so I've got to ask the question about <laughs> so I um I'm married to a Spanish guy and before I met him I wasn't really into beer at all and then I met him and he introduced me to a frosted glass of Cruz Campo and since then I've never looked back and it's my favorite beer <laughs> So what was the catalyst to your, you know, to your journey with Fabia? And do you have a favourite? Oh, okay. Catalyst to the journey, my journalism. I was, I think I was freelancing at the time and I was thinking, you know, I want, I want something that's going to challenge me. Not that I went and drank beer, but I, I saw some figures saying that from one year, I think it was 2008 to 2009, the number of women who said they enjoyed drinking beer as a regular part of their kind of week, had doubled from, I don't know, nearly a million to like uh, 1.3, something. The figures were ridiculous. And I looked at it and went, that's that's a lie. This is me with my, you know, red wine drinking self. I was like, that's a lie. Can't. (laughs) And so I went to kind of try and dig out the truth behind the figures because obviously it was a research report. So it wasn't a lie, but I was just like, what? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So my research kind of took me to go, okay, let me go and see, you know, where the truth is, speak to some experts, speak to some. There were a couple of pubs in, in the East Midlands, Nottinghamshire Way, who were like, yeah, you know, our customers. We get a lot of women in. They spend more money than the guys. They do drink beer. Da, 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 da. And, you know, beer is where our sales growth is, all the rest of it. And so I went to pitch an idea on that. When I'd done a little bit of research, I was thinking, this could be a good idea for a feature. So I pitched it to BBC in the East Midlands. And so they let me kind of go and do a, a feature investigating the history of women in beer, which started in the Middle East, Africa, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, history points to the fact that women in Sumeria, which I think is now, ancient Sumeria, I think is now Iran. There are tablets of stone with prayers to and hymns to Ninkazi, who's the goddess of beer. <laughs> You're talking, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we invented it, black women invented it. <laughs> um, so I did this investigation and kind of looked at the, you know, women being potentially the key to like the profitability of pubs. But the research was the key in that I needed to drink beer. And I tasted one particular beer that was like, it's, it had a peach a peach aroma and a peach, the really slight delicate peach flavour in it. Um, it wasn't like, you know, someone had tipped peach cordial into a lager or something like that. It was really just like, wow, how can this be so beautifully balanced? It's kind of fruity, but there was a bitterness. And that blew me away. And so I was like, I need to, if beer can be like this, then where are the rest of them? <laughs> that was basically my, where are the rest of them? So then I just started exploring different beers and trying different beers and like opening up my mind, which had always been quite narrow about beer. It was like, uh, lager, bitter beer. But the realisation that it could, there were so many thousands and thousands of different beers out there, different strength, different aromas, some bitter, some not beautiful fruit kind of on the nose and just a richness of flavour. So when on my journey anyway, when on my beer journey, it's never really stopped. <laughs> Started writing about it about 10 years ago. Did my beer sommelier exams and stuff. And then BBC Good Food said, will you be our beer writer this year? And I'm like, 
Yeah. What is it like in terms of training to become a beer sommelier? Is it like, I've watched a couple of films about being a wine sommelier and it's, that seems really tough. Is it like that and very serious or is there, you know, some fun elements as well? Or Yeah, it's still fun. So when I took my exam, so I, you had to do, I think, at least three courses at the Beer Academy where they do them at a specific pub in London. And I was working in London at the time as well. So, But you can take those different courses in different pubs around the country. I know Birmingham do some, Sheffield, Bristol, I think. So you take an introduction to beer, you take an advanced beer course, you do a how to judge beer course. Then you have to apply to take the beer sommelier qualification, the UK Beer Insider Academy do. And obviously, you know, kind of explain why you want to do it and why you'd be kind of a a good ambassador for the industry and all that sort of thing. And then you have like a a test, you have a viva basically, as if you're doing a PhD, right? (laughs) You do a viva. So you test, you have to identify the beer styles of about 10 to 12 different beers, I think. And you have a conversation with, you know, top, top sommelier. This is like someone that you can't pull the wool over their eyes. If you don't know your beer, you're not going to pass. So you do the beer styles, you have a conversation with them. And you also you get given a menu and you match the beer to the food on the menu. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It's this, this intense. It's intense. My perception, this may be really like wrong, but... I'd imagine it's not a very diverse world, or am I being narrow? It's in in America. There's a movement now. You know, there are um, a lot of beer influencers, and I've seen black female beer influencers, and there are black owned breweries. I know of two black owned breweries here in the UK, and Jaeger Weiss is a brewer at Wildcard Brewery, and then there's me, and <laughs> like the, in in this country, there's there's still in terms of black asian and minority i think people in b still a small very small community but that said what i've experienced of the brewing industry in this country has been nothing but love really that's so yeah nothing but love you know from the minute i started writing so this was 10 years ago now and going to events and get invited to loads of things and you know it would always just be wow love what you're doing what have you and so you know like i'm a member of the beer writers guild and i've won i won two awards three awards i've won a few beer writers guild awards and stuff like that nothing but love that's amazing that's really good to hear so do you have your own brewery? I don't. Um, my husband does like to home brew. Okay. Um, so he has his own little electric brewing system. Oh. He's always loved he's loved um, beer and real ale for time. And I've always gone, what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> and now, seriously, if you ever saw, well, there's sometimes I've put a few videos on Instagram of like my beer hall and we've got to get a fridge because we've just not got enough room a specific beer fridge not got enough room at the moment for all the beer we've got in the house because a lot of breweries send me samples to taste if they've got a new beer and you know I might be looking for samples in a certain style for a column coming up or something like that so basically our dining room is ridiculous <laughs> my dream and um <laughs> seriously just had two boxes of Mexican beer delivered and it doesn't help that we're being more health conscious and we do not drink. We've, we don't drink Monday to Thursday. So it's going to take us even longer to get through all the beer. Unless you just cane it on the weekend. Just wake up yeah. and go through it all. You may as well. We tried it one weekend. We were very ill. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is not a good strategy. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I love oh, that. Gosh. Yeah. Well. Is your husband mm-hmm. here as well? He's not actually. He's more um, the drinker and the brewer. He's musically inclined as well. So he makes his own music and stuff and records and puts tracks out and stuff. Just as a, as a sideline, because we're both quite creative in that sense. You know, we, we do these kind of quite um, intense jobs. Like me with the academia and he's a videographer and editor and stuff. And our jobs are very intense in the day and then like even the weekends were like right what we're doing creatively <laughs> you know it is your um fabulous one podcast a collaboration with between the two of you as well like in terms of creative yeah so thankfully because he's you know editor on kind of audio and video yeah definitely i don't think i could have achieved you know getting 
Fabulous Woman to sound as good as it does without him like doing the the polishing and, and the distribution and all that sort of thing. So yeah, on stuff like that, we work we work as a team. Yeah. So it's about the time I'm going to ask the Melanie Magic question. So every single podcast we ask our guests the Melanie Magic question, which is, what are your hopes and dreams for Black British culture in the next five to ten years? And do you have any insights or any ideas on how we're going to get there? Big question. Big. Yeah, it is. Gosh, five, ten years. You know, there's been so much change in the last three, four months, particularly since the hideous murder of George Floyd. There's been a, a huge shift in understanding and a willingness in this country in particular around organisations, media or, and otherwise, in wanting to see us mm-hmm. as a people, as black people, properly see us, understand what we have been through, what we endure, the inequalities that are stacked against us often, and they see us but they also now I feel more than ever before want to help affect change, positive lasting change. I get that sense, you know, that that things are changing way more than they ever have in my whole lifetime. So if those strides have been made in those few months and as long as they last, then, you know, there'll be leaps and bounds massively in terms of all the things that I'm interested in, you know, there being more black, Asian, minority, ethnic news editors, you know, people setting the agenda, commissioners deciding on what programmes we're going to watch and listen to and consume. You know, more opportunities for actors and actresses so they don't have to go and work in America to make it big. You know, the Letitia Wrights, the John Boyers of this world were getting like tiny, tiny little parts. You know, they had to go to America to get that success. I'd like to see that they can have huge success here. And also that, you know, everyone's treated fairly. It's not just about kind of seeing people. Representation is important. Yeah. It is important. It's hugely important. But also that, I'd like to see in the next five, ten years that people are being treated fairly. There's an acknowledgement of how we're being not treated fairly and that things change. How does that happen? The Gen Zs now are pushing anyway, right? They're they're affecting change. They're the new leaders of these future organisations. They're the new agenda setters. But also I'd like to hope that those who, and I spoke about this before just in a small way I think those who can be philanthropic and use their immense wealth for change I hope that they do more of that and they encourage others so you know the likes of Stormzy and the scholarships Mm -hmm. right yeah and the murky books and the likes of Marcus Rashford you know using his voice not just in football but you know affecting changing government policy right Mm -hmm. and even clapping back when he gets his when he got his (laughs) is honour <laughs> do you know what I mean that not being afraid to use their voice and their power I, hopefully I'll, you know they will inspire others mm-hmm. in similar positions to kind of push forward for us as yeah. well. and so you know if all of that comes together you know in five ten years hopefully we won't be talking about ethnicity pay gap and you know we won't be seeing the kind of levels of people taking companies to tribunal for racial discrimination and all the rest of it you know things will really improve I hope there is a lot of change you know I've got a young great niece she's only three she'll be four next month I hope you know in 10 20 years time she does not face anything that we faced right in terms of racism and discrimination yeah that's my lot oh thank you brilliant answer perfect answer I totally it's really inspiring because every time we ask the question I always in my mind I just Everything that comes out of the, the guest mouth, I'm just like, this is just the speech. This is amazing. <laughs> this is the build up. I love it. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think you said, Julie and I had a conversation recently, and, and it's this element of we're just fed up. You know, we're having conversations that our parents have had, grandparents, and it, there is change happening. I agree. I, I think the fact that our eyes, so we went to the Leeds Black Lives Matter peaceful protest a couple of months back and mm-hmm. to see so many white allies is just, I that for me is just as important as seeing yes. your allies of, of the same race. And 
I just think that that element of change, I was just blown away at the support. I was, I was just quite emotional about it, really, because I didn't expect it. It's the first time where this pull up, if you see something and, you know, it's not right, whether you're white or black or anything in between, you pull them up and you, you stand shoulder to shoulder. And it was a visual representation. I think there's about 10,000 odd people there and majority were white. I was just like, this is, it was the first time, but I was literally gobsmacked. And I was just thinking, yeah, I can actually feel it. It's, it's something starting, which was, yeah, really lovely. I think it's always great to hear people's perspectives because you know you, you have your personal perspective, your industry perspective, and they're all really powerful narratives. But I love how your answer is full of hope, and I think that is perhaps if we were asking this question a year ago, we wouldn't have the same response. Because I think you know the winds of change are in the air, and we all have our part to play. Is it a revolution? Only time will tell when you look back. There are some echoes of other times. I don't know in terms of because I wasn't born then but just things like you know in the 70s with starting in the 60s as the American Civil Rights Unit um, movement but then spilling into the 70s and just how it infiltrated in terms of like the your hair and I think that's another thing that's happening the kind of natural hair revolution or natural hair journey that a lot of people are encouraged to go on mm -hmm that those kind of parallels as well, because it's more of a kind of, yeah, there's just so many different elements that are kind of knitting together really nicely in terms of, and you know, like you, you mentioned in terms of like younger people not wanting to, they wanted to be their authentic selves in the workplace, so they're going to create their own workplaces. All of these things yeah. are in for, because people not, no longer, is Angela Davis no longer accepting the things you can't change and changing the things you can't accept that's just how people are playing it that is it that is totally it and like you said it does feel like the the winds of change are, are coming through i'm gobsmacked at what we're seeing you know and just an acceptance of an understanding of what's happened to us as a people and how you know there are allies who want to walk with us to make those changes yeah it's big it's big and i just hope it's lasting the little tiny little cynicism there can't go away with the journalist but um, i hope it lasts i hope it's deep and lasting change you know yeah, yeah that's the hope but um oh thank you so much so we haven't been able to talk because you do so many amazing things but we wanted to talk a bit more about your podcast but the fabulous woman podcast but if you could Tell our listeners how we can get in touch with you, how we can follow you and all of the wonderful things you're doing. That'd be great. Oh, thank you. I have just one tag for all my socials. So on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, I am TV Marv. T-V-M-A-R-V. Nice and easy. So everyone can follow you. That's what <laughs> you do, actually. Yeah, yeah. Very active on your social media, which is great. But yeah, that's pretty much it from us today. I want to just say a huge thank you to Marvin. You are... The Queen, we have loved you for a long time, so it's been an absolute honour. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your story. We really appreciate it. And thank you to the listeners. <laughs>